Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We are going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke wrote this biography for us of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry. And today we're coming to a really central uh, part of Jesus' ministry, uh, a key moment in his ministry where he had a very significant encounter with the Pharisees. Some people have called this a watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus, where the whole dynamic between Jesus and the Pharisees would change and ultimately lead to the Pharisees seeking to destroy Jesus, to to get rid of him. And we know that that ultimately happened on Good Friday, and we will come back to celebrate Easter Sunday when Jesus then conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. But today we're going to look at this, uh, this episode between Jesus and the Pharisees. I want to begin by just sharing a quick illustration for you. When I was a kid growing up, I was always fascinated by by professional boxing, and in particular, there was a boxer who I just just couldn't get enough of. And I never got to watch the fights because I was just a kid, and my parents, you know, wouldn't let me watch the fights, and probably because pay per view, you know, was so expensive too. But I would get my Sports Illustrated magazines, and I would read just with interest about this particular fighter. It was a guy by the name of Mike Tyson. I'm sure all you guys know Iron Mike Tyson. And those of you who remember him, he had an incredible boxing career. He was known at the time in the late 80s, early 90s as the baddest man on the planet. Prior to 1990, Mike Tyson had a record of 37-0. and He had won 37 fights with no losses. Most of those fights he won by knockout. Mike Tyson didn't knock guys out in the 9th, 10th round. He usually knocked them out in like the 9th, 10th second. He was, like, ferocious. And I remember I would read the accounts of his fights in Sports Illustrated, and I was just fascinated that, I mean, it was just incredible to me that there could be this guy who was so intimidating and so dominating that guys would just literally, like, be in fear the very moment they stepped in the ring with him. Well, that was the case until 1990 when Mike Tyson faced a guy by the name of Buster Douglas. And uh, in 1990, Mike Tyson fought Buster Douglas in Tokyo, Japan, and everybody expected that this would just be a rout by Tyson. Buster Douglas was this no-name fighter. Mike Tyson was this ferocious, you know, undefeated champion. And uh, nobody thought that this was going to be anything significant except for Buster Douglas. You see, Buster Douglas had been watching the tape on Mike Tyson. He had been training, and he had been studying Mike Tyson. And Buster Douglas discovered that most guys, when they fought Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson was known for his ferocious right hook. But Buster Douglas watched the tape very carefully, and he discovered that every time Mike Tyson threw that hook, he would lower his shoulder a little bit and leave himself exposed to a counterpunch. Well, the other fighters that would face Tyson were always so afraid of him that when he would throw that right hook, they would pull away, whereas Buster Douglas, he realized if he could just stick in there, take that hit, he would be able to land a significant, powerful counterpunch. And so the fight went forward, and through 9, 10 rounds, I believe it was, Buster Douglas put this tactic into effect, and he ended up knocking out Mike Tyson in what is to this day known as one of the greatest upsets, not just in boxing history, but all of sports history. When Buster Douglas defeated Mike Tyson, nobody saw it coming, and it was all because Douglas discovered the way to counterpunch Tyson. 
Now, I share this illustration with us this morning because we're going to stick with this boxing theme today because we are going to see in Luke chapter 6 a bout, actually two bouts, between two theological heavyweights. Two theological heavyweights, the Pharisees on one hand, and in the other corner, Jesus Christ. All right, you guys ready for this? All right, so in this corner we have the Pharisees. The keepers of the law, the doctors of dogma, the legends of legalism against Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lion of Judah, the Messiah, the cornerstone of Zion, the great I Am. Let's get ready to rumble! All right, if you got your Bibles, let's take a look at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Then I want to come back and make some observations about this passage for us. Luke 6, starting chapter 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious, the Pharisees, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. As we're going to see in this passage today, this morning, the Pharisees would learn that it was never a good thing to go toe-to-toe with the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Pharisees thought that they had discovered a way to knock out Jesus once and for all, but Jesus was the master of the counterpunch. And in this passage today, we see these two theological heavyweights going at it over the nature of the Sabbath. We're going to talk about this this morning. And as Luke highlights for us, there's actually two stories that Luke puts together. And so to stick with this boxing metaphor, you know, every good boxing match has a tagline, right? The thriller in Manila, the rumble in the jungle, right? So today, our first bout against Jesus versus the Pharisees, the throwdown on the threshing ground. The throwdown on the threshing ground. Verses 1 through 5, what's going on here? Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples are walking along the edge of a field. They're picking some grain out of this farmer's field. They're rubbing the kernels in their hand to get the fruit out. And then they're eating the grain. And the Pharisees see Jesus doing this. Now here's the deal. The problem, right, the Pharisees accused them of breaking the law. The problem wasn't that they were picking grain from this field. Okay, It wasn't their field. You would think maybe that was the problem, right? They're stealing grain from somebody. No. God's law in Exodus 23-25 allowed for people to pick grain as they were traveling from one place to another. As long as they didn't use, you know, a threshing fork or something to, you know, to to harvest, you know, abundance of grain, they could take little kernels and, and eat it for their own sustenance. So that wasn't the issue. What was the issue? The issue was the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking 
breaking the Sabbath law by working on the Sabbath. How were they working on the Sabbath? Well, when they were picking grain, they were harvesting. And when they were rubbing it in their fingers, they were winnowing and threshing. And when they would put it in their mouth, they were preparing food. And all of these things were considered violations of the Sabbath according to the man-made Pharisaical law that the Pharisees followed and held everybody else accountable to. So they had thought that they had accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. Now, just some background on the Sabbath to help us understand where, where this whole issue comes from. God had actually given the Sabbath law to the people of Israel. If you remember in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 8, in Exodus 20, verse 8, God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Okay? That was God's law. That's what he said about the Sabbath. Okay? You work for six days and on the seventh day you rest. Why? Because I, as God, I worked for six days. I created the universe. I created the world. And on the seventh day I rested. And so now I am giving you the same pattern so that you can have a day of rest to recover from your work and to focus on worship. Right? That's all God said. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But the Pharisees, they had created a whole laundry list of man-made rules and regulations to define for the Israelites how you properly do this. Okay, God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Pharisees create this long list of do's and don'ts for how you actually go about doing this. In fact, they had 39 man-made rules related specifically to keeping the Sabbath. Now, why did they do this? Well, let's talk about fences for a minute. How many of you guys know the longest fence in the world? Anybody here? What's, what's the longest fence in the world? Any ideas? I hear a couple Great Wall of China's out there, right? You'd think it was the Great Wall of China. The longest fence in the world is actually found in Australia. It's called the Dingo Fence. It runs 3,488 miles over the whole southeastern third of that island continent. And the Australians built the dingo fence 100 years ago to protect the sheep ranchers and the sheep ranches from the wild dogs, the dingoes that would come and devastate the flocks of sheep. And so they built this fence. The Australians maintain this fence every year with an annual budget of about $10 million, all to protect the sheep ranchers in southern Australia. Now, the Pharisees, they also knew a thing or two about fences. And you see, what the Pharisees had done is they had taken God's law and they had decided that to help us protect people from breaking God's law, what we're going to do is we're just going to fence off God's law so that nobody can even get close to it. Okay, so God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, we're going to create 39 rules to help people do that. Right? That's the law. Let's create a bunch of fences, a bunch of man-made rules and restrictions to keep people from even getting close to breaking that law. You see, many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they actually believed that the Messiah wasn't going to come until Israel had perfectly kept the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees were very concerned. They created 39 rules to make sure nobody even came close to breaking God's Sabbath law. But what happened was, the, the, the sad part is, is the laws of the Pharisees, instead of actually helping people, they ended up creating a straitjacket of restrictions where people became enslaved to these laws. 
instead of serving as guardrails to protect God's law, they ended up becoming prisons, enslaving the Jewish people by these man-made rules and regulations. What were some of these laws of the Pharisees that they had built around the Sabbath? Well, again, there were 39 of them. Let me give you some examples. No baking on the Sabbath. Okay, if you want to eat, you've got to prepare your food the day before. Baking is work. You don't work on the Sabbath. You don't tie knots on the Sabbath. You don't untie knots on the Sabbath. There's no sewing allowed on the Sabbath. You can't hunt or trap on the Sabbath. You can't write more than two letters on the Sabbath. And we're not talking like writing a letter to Grandma. I'm talking about A, B, and C. You can't write more than two letters. You can't erase more than two letters. Because that's considered work. You can't build a fire. You can't extinguish a fire. You're not allowed to tear anything. You're not allowed to carry anything more than six feet in the public domain. If you do, that's considered work and you've broken the Pharisaical laws related to the Sabbath. You see, they had come up with this whole list of man-made rules. God just said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the Pharisees said, no, what that means is do this, 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 and this. And it ended up creating this burdensome prison for the people of Israel. It it would be like if we here at church decided to make a rule, okay? No one is allowed to stand on the sanctuary stage except the pastors, okay? If you're not a pastor, you don't step on the stage. That's our new rule, okay? You understand that? Now, to help us enforce this rule, here's the deal. We're also going to create another rule that says no one sits in the front row anymore, Okay, so next week, guys, Eric, Ashley, you got to be back one row. Joy, back one row. We don't want you even getting close to the stage. You got it? Now, here's the thing. We're also going to create another rule that says nobody even comes in the sanctuary if it's not Sunday. Right? That way, nobody will even get close to the stage. So, so unless it's a Sunday morning, don't even think of coming in the sanctuary. Now, here's the deal. We also recognize that there's going to be times when people other than the pastors are going to need to come on stage, right? I mean, we have a worship team that needs to get up here to practice and play. We have, you know, guys like Jim and Dave that help set up our sound equipment every week and help do the maintenance up here. So sometimes others are going to need to come on stage. So here's the deal. We want you to bring a towel, all right? Bring a towel, and when you come, if you have to come on stage, I want you to lay the towel out, and you stand on the towel. That way you're not really standing on the stage. Okay, you got it? But here's the thing. If you need to walk across the stage, you need to bring two towels, okay? You need two towels. That way you can put the other one down, step onto it, pick up the towel you just walked off of, and you can make your way across the stage, and that way you never really touch the stage because you're not a pastor, and only pastors are allowed on the stage. You see how it works, friends? This is legalism. This is what the Pharisees had done. Legalism is an over-application of God's law. God creates a law, but the Pharisees say, to enforce that law, we're going to do this, 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 and this. It has nothing to do with the original law that God made. But in their man-made rules and regulations, they end up creating this whole laundry list of do's and don'ts. Now, the Pharisees probably thought that they had landed a pretty good knockout punch on Jesus here, right? I mean, we caught you guys red-handed. You're picking grain. You're harvesting. You're threshing. You're preparing food on the Sabbath. You're guilty. But Jesus lands a powerful counterpunch. Take a look at our passage again. What does Jesus do? He takes them right back to Scripture. 
Friends, every time Jesus was tempted, like when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, or any time he faced opposition from the Pharisees or his religious adversaries, what did Jesus do? He always took them back to Scripture. Okay, There's a lesson in that for us, right? If we're not rooted in Scripture, if we're not grounded in Scripture, you're going to be easy prey. You're going to be easy prey to our enemy, the devil. You're going to be easy prey to the lies of the world. Jesus stuck to Scripture. Friends, I think there's a lesson there, right? You've got to be in the Word. So what does Jesus do? He takes the Pharisees back to the Word. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus references a story found in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. And what's Jesus talking about? Well, he tells the Pharisees, he says, remember King David? And he goes on to remind them of this episode where King David and his men were on the run in the Judean wilderness fleeing King Saul who was trying to kill them, right? And they were hiding out in the wilderness and they were hungry and they didn't have any food. So what did they do? They went to the tabernacle and they asked the priest, do you have any food you can share with us? And the priest says to David, we don't have any food other than the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence, which was in the heart of the tabernacle, which God's law said could only be eaten by the priest. But the Bible tells us that the priest gave the consecrated bread to David and David ate it and he gave it to his companions and they ate it. The bread that was only intended for the priest. Now what's Jesus saying here? Well, basically what he's telling the Pharisees is he's saying, look, David did what was technically unlawful by taking the priestly bread and David wasn't rebuked for it. So God must have deemed David's actions appropriate. You see, friends, what David, what Jesus knew and what the Pharisees were missing is that God's Sabbath law was never intended to shackle people or keep them from meeting their basic needs. Rather, it was intended to free humanity up to have a day for rest and worship. But the the Pharisees, their legalistic view of the Sabbath had completely distorted God's original intentions for it. Now, Now, I want you to understand what Jesus has done here in this passage. He's just put the Pharisees in a major bind. Right? If the Pharisees condemn Jesus, then they have to condemn David too. But the reality is, is no good Jew would ever condemn King David, who was seen as the greatest king in the history of Israel. So, so Jesus has the Pharisees on the ropes at this point. But Jesus isn't done yet. After landing this counterpunch, Jesus goes in for the knockout. In verse 5, Jesus declares, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This leads me to observation number two in our first bout here this morning. The Pharisees, they didn't just pick the wrong fight, but they picked the wrong opponent going up against the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I want you to understand something, friend. Please understand this. The Pharisees didn't seek to kill Jesus because he beat them in scriptural debates. Okay? He did do that. But that's not why they sought to kill him. They sought to kill him because he claimed to be God in human flesh. He did what in their eyes was the ultimate blasphemy, calling himself God in human flesh. And friends, when Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, please understand, he was making a very clear declaration of his deity. He didn't need to spell this out for the Pharisees. They got very clearly what he was saying. What was he saying? He was saying, look at God instituted the Sabbath. He created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. He gave the Sabbath to us as a pattern for us to follow. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus knows what the Pharisees are thinking. They're thinking, well, wait a minute here. All right. Sure. Maybe God made an exception for David. 
right? But who do you think you are, mister? You're no David. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he says, yeah, God did make an exception for David. And guess what? I'm the God who did that. That's me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus declares. This was a clear of a pronunciation of his deity as Jesus could have made. Now back to the issue of picking grain on the Sabbath. In his reference to David, Jesus had already made clear that God's view of the Sabbath law was inherently different from the Pharisees' view. But now Jesus goes right to the issue of authority. The Pharisees, right, he completely trumps their view. They're so concerned about upholding the integrity of King David, and Jesus says, look, I'm greater than David. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus had every right to do whatever he wanted to do on the Sabbath. He was the authority, not the Pharisees. Now here's the ultimate irony in what the Pharisees had done with their man-made legalistic Sabbath rules. Okay? The Pharisees thought that they were defending the will of God. But in their zealousness, what they did was they ended up actually superseding the will of God. In other words, the Pharisees, their view was, well, God said this, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what he really meant was, don't tie knots, don't tear paper, don't bake, don't thresh, don't harvest, don't hunt, don't do all this, don't, 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 don't. See, we know better than God. And they actually superseded the will of God. Let me give you a more contemporary illustration of how this legalistic attitude works. My cousins grew up in a very legalistic, fundamentalist church. And I remember as a kid, when we'd go out to California to visit that part of my family, it was always kind of awkward, right? Because, I mean, like, it was very obvious that their vision of Christianity was very different than what, what I was raised in. And I remember, like, I always felt like I was walking on eggshells around, around them because of their legalistic rules that they felt that they had to follow to prove their devotion to God. For example, I remember one Sunday we went to youth group at my cousin's church, and on the back wall of my cousin's youth group room, they had in big, bold letters painted on the back wall, James one twenty seven: keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, that's a great biblical admonition. We should all strive to follow that, right? That's a command from the Lord. Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. But for my cousins, their church took that law of God. And for them, that became, you don't play cards. You don't read comic books. You don't watch TV. In fact, you don't even own a TV. You don't go to movies. You don't listen to secular music. You certainly don't listen to compromised Christian music like Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith. Right? Men, you always wear a suit and tie to church on Sunday. Ladies, you always wear a dress, but it's got to be a dress that covers your entire legs. Okay? You only use the authorized version of the Bible, the King James Version. True worship is singing hymns only, but it has to be from the right hymnal. And the list went on and on and on of the things that you do to prove your worthiness to God. This is legalism, friends. And as I said a moment ago, the legalists, their basic attitude is we know better than God. You see, this was the heart of the Pharisees' refusal to embrace Jesus. Here they are face to face with the rightful Lord of the Sabbath, but in their hearts they're thinking, no, we're the lords of the Sabbath. 
We make the laws. We keep the laws. We enforce the laws, not you. And how sad when you think about this. Here they are standing face to face with God in human flesh, the Messiah who came to save them, the Messiah who loved them and wanted a relationship with them. But they're more worried about the rules than the relationship. They're so worried about keeping the rules that they missed out on the relationship that God was offering them. Because they were blinded by their allegiance to their man-made rules and regulations. Well, every good match needs a rematch. And so Luke brings us to bout number two. We call this one fury in the fellowship. Bout number two, Jesus versus the Pharisees. Jesus goes on another uh, Sabbath to a synagogue. And he goes into the synagogue and the Pharisees have laid a trap for Jesus. They've got a guy in there who's got a shriveled right hand. Okay, we don't know what that means. He just couldn't use his hand, right? Maybe it was paralyzed and had atrophied. Maybe when he was a kid, you know, a donkey stepped on it and crushed it and he couldn't use it the rest of his life, right? We don't know, but his, his hand didn't work. So the Pharisees are watching to see if Jesus will heal this guy on the Sabbath because if Jesus touches this guy and heals him, he will violate the Sabbath law of not working on the Sabbath. You see, in Jewish Pharisaical law, you could only help somebody medically on the Sabbath if they were in mortal danger. So in other words, I mean, if they weren't bleeding out, right, you didn't touch them. You didn't help them. They could wait till the next day. That was Pharisaical law. And so they're watching Jesus. But Jesus, again, he's God, right? He's God in human flesh. He knows what they're thinking. He knows they're setting a trap for him. So what does Jesus do? He calls the guy up with the withered hand right in the middle of the service. Come on over here. Come on up. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees this question. Jesus asked the Pharisees this question found in verse 9. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Now, I want you to notice here, Jesus is making two points with this question. What he's doing, first of all, is he's highlighting the tragic irony of the Pharisees' goal that day. Okay, think about this, friends. Rather than being concerned with how they could help the man with the shriveled hand, what are the Pharisees worried about? The Pharisees are looking for a way to use the guy with the shriveled hand so that they can destroy Jesus. I mean, I mean, it's just insane. The blindness of these guys, they're worried that Jesus might break the Sabbath law by healing this guy when they're completely oblivious to the greater sin issue that day, which was the hatred in their hearts and their murderous intentions for Jesus. They're totally blind, right? Man, we're going to make sure he doesn't break the law. Never mind, we're hating and seeking to kill a guy. And so Jesus says, what is really breaking the law on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Because he knew what they were thinking. And Luke says he just stood there and he stared at them. You got to think the conviction those guys must have felt in that moment. As they recognized the error of their ways. The second thing Jesus points out with this question, he once again highlights God's real intentions for the Sabbath law. God gave the Sabbath as a day of rest and worship. It was meant to be a blessing for people, but the Pharisees had turned it into this straitjacket of restrictions to make sure people didn't do anything that could be construed as work, including helping a guy, showing mercy to a guy in need, right? That's work, so we don't do that on the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus is basically saying to these guys, look, you have missed the whole point. You missed the whole point of the law. And what does Jesus do next? He tells the man to stretch out his hand. And the guy is healed. The guy couldn't stretch out his hand. It didn't work. But Jesus says, stretch out his hand. And all of a sudden, for the first time in however many years, the guy stretches out his hand and it comes back to life. And talk about adding insult to injury, right? Not only has Jesus just dominated them with truth, but now he heals this guy on the Sabbath. But notice, he didn't actually break their law because he didn't touch them. He didn't even touch the guy. He just said, get up here, stretch out your hand, and the guy's hand is back, right? Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, please understand this. When Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand, what he's doing is he is demonstrating God's true priority on that Sabbath day. God wasn't concerned about their list of do's and don'ts. What was God's true priority? His true priority was for mercy. You see, the Pharisees completely missed the heart of the law because they had completely missed the heart of God. And they should have known better, right? They were the guys who read the Bible and told every, supposedly told everybody what God's word says. But what did they miss? They had missed what God had revealed in the prophets, like Micah 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Keep the list, 39 do's and don'ts? No. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires. But see, they didn't even get the heart of the law because they didn't know the heart of God. They were far from God. Outwardly, they were doing all the stuff, following all the rules, keeping the restrictions and regulations. On the outside, they look good. But Jesus in another place says on the inside, you guys are like whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. They didn't know God. They just knew their man-made rules and laws that supposedly helped them prove their worthiness to God. Here in these stories, Jesus exposes the ignorance and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And in verse 11, Luke says that the Pharisees were furious with Jesus. They were furious. In the Greek, that word furious is actually an irrational or insane rage. Matthew's account of this story tells us that they were so furious that they actually began plotting with their arch rivals, the Herodians, the followers of King Herod, to begin to think, how can we kill Jesus and get him off the scene? Because they were so furious that here is a guy doing what the law says you're not supposed to do, claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and embarrassing us who are the true keepers of the law. We can't stand for this. And so this, friends, was really a watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. From this point on, as we read through the Gospel of Luke, every encounter with the Pharisees is about the Pharisees looking for a way to destroy Jesus because they got to get him off the scene. So how do we apply this passage to our lives today? Let me suggest three ways, three points of application. This first one is for us individually. Application number one, is your faith today a burden or a blessing? Is your faith a burden or a blessing? Let me ask it this way. When somebody looks at your life and your relationship with God, do they see life or do they see strife? 
Is Christianity for you about proving your worthiness to God by keeping all the rules, by doing things the right way? We dress a certain way, we act a certain way, we watch certain movies, we don't watch other movies, right? We keep the do's and don'ts because we have to keep the do's and don'ts to prove our love for God. And a lot of people live their lives that way and try to live out their faith that way. And I find that for most people who try to do faith that way, it becomes very tiring and very exhausting. Because the question is, is how do you know when you've ever done enough to prove your worthiness to God? And so you keep striving and striving and working and doing the stuff and following the checklist. And you completely miss out on the message of the gospel the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Many people buy into this performance-based Christianity, but the reality is, friends, listen to me very clearly this morning. There is nothing you can do today to make God love you more. And there is also nothing you can do today to make God love you less. The message of the gospel is that God loves us unconditionally. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world the whole world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whoever, okay? Not the person who does all the right deeds, not the person who never says a bad word, not the person who dresses a certain way and does enough stuff at church to serve, right? God says, look, no, my love for you is unconditional. It is absolute. I just want you to come into a relationship with me. I can, I can prove to you that that is the case this morning. How do I know that? Because God tells us that himself, Romans 5, 8. But God proved his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. God proved his love for us while we were still sinners. Not because of our work, not because of our efforts, not because of our keeping the rules and the do's and the don'ts. No. God says, while you were a sinner, I loved you so much that I was willing to come and die for you. To demonstrate my love. So that you could know my love. Because that's my heart. My heart is to know you, to have a relationship with you, and for you to know my love. And to know the life that's found in a relationship with me. So is your faith about life or is it about strife? Is it a burden or is it a blessing? And, and, and if you find yourself running the race of trying to do more to prove your worthiness to God, friends, you need to get back to the gospel because you're not going to find that message anywhere in the gospel. In fact, I, I'd encourage you maybe spend a couple minutes this afternoon reading through the book of Galatians. Right? The, the Apostle Paul wrote a whole book in the New Testament for Christians who thought they had to do more to prove their worthiness to God. Paul says, no, no, no. God proved his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Second application this morning. This is for us as a church, Lakes Free. What concerns us most, broken rules or broken lives? This is a gut check question for us as a church. Okay, I mean, what kind of church culture do we want to have here at Lakes Free? What kind of church do we want to be here at Lakes Free? Is our emphasis going to be on the rules or on the relationship? 
Are we, are we going to tell somebody that they can't come to Lakes Free or feel welcome at Lakes Free if they don't dress a certain way and act a certain way and have made sure that they've taken care of all the sins in their background and, you know, they're serving in so many ministries, right? Is that the kind of church culture we want to promote where you have to keep the checklist to be in good favor here at Lakes Free? Or are we going to say, you know what, you just come. You just come and we're going to bless you and we're going to minister to you because, you know what, that's the kind of God we serve. Just come and come and experience the love and grace of God. I, I, I think we do a fairly good job of cultivating an atmosphere, a culture of grace here at Lakes Free. We're certainly not perfect. I've made my share of mistakes, right? I mean, like my default is truth. I'm like the truth guy, right? And, and so like I, I tend towards legalism. That's just, I'm being honest with you, right? So I need to go to the gospel on a regular basis to be reminded that, you know what, Jason, you don't have to prove anything to God and the people of your church don't have to prove anything to God. God loves them as they are. Just tell them to come to me because I care about them and I want to love on them, right? And so, so we don't get it perfect, but we do a pretty good job. I'd say a couple of years ago at our men's advance, we were, I was driving our speaker back to the airport, a guy named Jonathan Heron. He was from Michigan and he had spent the weekend with us. And he said, Jason, I'll tell you something. I can tell that your church is a place of grace. I said, well, how do you mean? What do you mean? He says, well, you know what? I've been watching your guys all week. We had a guy on that men's advance that weekend. He doesn't live in our community anymore, but, but he looked different <laughs> from the guys in our group. He dressed different from the guys in our group. He, he acted different from the guy. He smelled different from the guys in our group, right? Like he, he, he wasn't like the, you know, the average guy around here. But you know what? The guys of our church for that weekend loved on this dude, embraced him, welcomed him, made him a brother in Christ. It was awesome. And my friend Jonathan, who was our speaker, he said, look, I saw your guys love that guy, and I saw God do a work in his life because your men reached out to him and loved him just as he was. And it was powerful. I think we do a pretty good job. But here's the thing. We always need to be on guard against legalism as a church because our human sin nature is to tend towards legalism. It is always easier to keep the checklist of do's and don'ts than it is to address the real heart issue of our sin. You know what I'm saying? Right? As long as I look outwardly like I'm doing all the right things, then I never really have to address the real sin in my heart. So, so sin is kind of, the, the default is legalism, and we need to guard against that as a church. And, and, and what kind of church do we want to be again? What kind of culture do we want to promote here? And, and here's the thing. I talked to a, a friend from our church this week, a woman in our church, and she was sharing with me a story about another woman in our church who had come to her recently, and for whatever reason, her perception of our church that she shared with her friend was that it was not okay for her to not be okay here at Lakes Free. Her friend was encouraging her, go talk to a pastor, share with your ABF, get help, get prayer support. People will care about you. And she, for whatever reason, perceived that it wasn't a safe thing for her to admit her struggles with the people of our church because she, for whatever reason, perceived that there is an image of what the right kind of person at Lakes Free looks like. And friends, I will tell you, that is a tragic lie from Satan. And if you are here this morning, I don't know who you are, but if you are here this morning and you are afraid to be open and honest about your sin and your struggles and get help for that because you're afraid we're going to think badly of you, 
You don't understand this church. And you don't understand the God we serve because the reality is it starts with our pastors. This church is full of imperfect people, including the guy standing here on stage this morning. And it filters down to our staff. I hate to break it to you. We're a bunch of imperfect, lousy people. And I know there's a bunch of imperfect, lousy people out here this morning. But you know what? I've heard from people in our community even. Why, you know, I talked to a buddy recently. He, he had invited a friend to come to Lakes Free. His friend said, I wouldn't fit in there. What do you mean? That's where the perfect people go. Friends, what a sad vision of what this place is. This isn't a church for perfect people. This is a church of imperfect people who know that they need the one who is perfect, Jesus. Okay, and, and for whatever reason, anyone would get that perception. We need to continue to fight against that and make it known that Lakes Free is a place where grace is going to be lavished on you no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, because that is what God has done for us, is he's lavished his grace on us. I, I mean, what, what are we going to tell people, Right. I mean, all around us in this room right now, we got people who are struggling with addictions, alcoholism. We got people in this room right now who have been in prison. You're looking around, the guy sitting next to you right now, right? <laughs> right? We got, we got marriages hanging by a thread. We got families dealing with strife with their kids. What are we going to tell people? You're not welcome here until you get all that stuff straightened out? Man alive. I'll tell you what, if we ever become that kind of a church, we are done. We're done. We might as well lock the doors, pack it up, close this place down. Because that's not a church. That's a social club for fake religious people. I don't belong in a church like that. I don't think any of us belong in a church like that. What kind of church do we want to be? It's important. Last point. Application number three, God's not keeping score. He just calls us to the floor. Get up. You know, that guy with the shriveled hand, (laughs) he experienced the touch of God. He experienced the power of God and the love of God and the healing transformation of God. But notice something. Jesus didn't make that guy jump through hoops to experience God's transforming power. Jesus said, just get up. Come to me. And I think there's a powerful lesson in that for us, friends. God loves you just the way you are. God wants to do a transforming work in your life, and he does that not by you trying harder to prove your love or your worthiness to him. He does that by proving his love and your worthiness for you by what he did for you on the cross. Jesus went to the cross to prove his love for us. The Lord of the Sabbath can transform your life, but he will do that freely in response to faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, God doesn't need your help. Okay, Legalism says you need to do more to prove your worthiness to God. God doesn't need you to do anything. God just says, get up off the floor, come to me, Trust me. Let me love on you and experience the power of my grace. And as you do, we're going to do an incredible work in your life. See, legalism says do. God says done. 
Jesus did it for us. It's by his power that our lives are transformed, not by us trying harder. So I ask you this morning, are you getting close to Jesus? Maybe today you need to get up off the floor and you need to just come and draw near to Jesus again and just say, Lord, I've been striving, I've been working, I've been struggling, but I'm tired, Jesus. I just want to rest next to you for a while and feel your grace and love again. And you'll feel the touch of God because that's who he is. He loves us unconditionally. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your grace, the beauty and wonder of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you don't call us to to strive after this list of do's and don'ts, these man-made rules and requirements, but Jesus, you just offer to lavish your grace upon us freely without any expectations. You You just say, come to me. I'll do a work in your heart. I'll transform your life. You don't have to prove anything to me. Just come. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful how you've done that in my life, Lord. And I pray that we would be that kind of church here at Lakes Free. That we would be a place where people feel welcome and safe to share and admit their failures, their struggles. That we would be brothers and sisters who would come around one another and love each other and extend grace and mercy and hope and point people back to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who truly can transform withered hands, who can transform withered lives out of his great love. God, let us know that once again today. Let us draw near to you and experience that in a very powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These words from 2 Peter chapter 1. And now grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you.